Welcome to the Logos of Experience and Truth podcast, where I unlock the mysteries of the beatific vision of God. This is the ancient yet ever-present path of discovering your inner freedom and unlimited potential to achieve your goals now. Check the episode description for a link to the podcast page at logosofexperienceandtruth.com where you can navigate this episode with time-stamped show notes. Let us begin. After listening to the previous recording, I was struck with one of the paradoxes regarding mystical experiences and those that have attempted to describe them, or rather, that all say that it's impossible to describe these things, that these experiences and visions and things seen are beyond words. I've touched upon this on a few different occasions and figured, let's go ahead and dive into this deeply right now so that you can understand why, what, and how the mystic or spiritual person that is at this stage deduces reality before, during, and after the mystical experience when one's eyes to the truth are opened. Because what the mystics have all stated is both true, that it cannot be described, and yet is not true. Because obviously, we wouldn't have much of a Bible or any other spiritual text from all of the other great religions without each of these visions that each and every prophet has had, spoken of, or written down for those future generations to see and decipher. So there must be something deeper, a deeper knowledge, a deeper understanding within this that either isn't spoken of for the sake of the student or pupil as I stated previously, or not known by the mystic since they're still in the aftermath of the awakening experience and haven't gone any deeper in order to understand, or that one is simply being complacent in what others have said instead of challenging it. Which, if you're listening to me now on this, the fourth episode, perhaps you're beginning to understand the manner and breadth in which I question and challenge the many different things I've read regarding such experiences in light of my own primarily to understand just what the hell I've been experiencing for 20 years. Thus, for the skeptic, or the scientist, or the psychologist, or the neurologist, or the agnostic, or the atheist, this episode will be of greatest importance to you to understand the point of view of a mystic, and thus the religious and spiritual, even if the many individual practitioners and believers do not know this to the depths that I know, since this is still part of the foundations of all religious, spiritual, mystical thought. Perhaps this may even provide a key towards understanding the limitless depths of psychological and spiritual understanding that all religions have handed down to us over the millennia, and perhaps lessen this silly debate between science and religion. For if you can see what I will try and show, see it as I see it, in as simple a manner as possible, namely that the same tools used to decipher the universe that science uses today, the same tools, or the same primary tool at least, was used throughout all of human history as it is now, regardless of what modern man and man across the ages through the use of their ingenious technology, the telescope and the microscope in particular, Regardless of how science has seen the depths of the external or the depths of the internal, whatever the image is that is seen through that lens, 
that is potentially being seen, that image is still being filtered by the brain. This means whatever the image that is seen is still being interpreted by the brain and presented to the conscious mind as the image of what is being seen in an automatic manner, the way in which our mortal image-producing brain functions. If you remember my theory or my underlying purpose in doing these podcasts, in writing the works that I have written and beyond, it is to show that the human experience that has been experienced throughout all time that is called God has several key elements that are exactly the same, even if they are shown artistically different by the works of those that have experienced. This includes the secular or the scientific. So in time, I will show how even what has been, quote, seen, unquote, scientifically, is still the same image that has been seen spiritually, religiously, mythologically even, and mystically. It is my understanding and viewpoint that science seems to have forgotten it was part of the mystery schools of old. In the school of Pythagoras, for instance, which is ancient Greece, like five or 600 BC or so, it's written that he wouldn't teach the greater mysteries of existence until one had mastered each of the physical sciences that were known and studied back then, in particular, of course, mathematics, to which he is most known for in the secular world. Modern science, chemistry in particular, seems to have forgotten its foundational roots in alchemy, which is probably a Western way of cutting out the contributions of the Muslims towards science that occurred during their Golden Age period, since they were alchemists, studying science in a spiritual manner. Alchemy, that spiritual scientific pursuit that even Newton pursued, the knowledge of which conveniently gets left out of any science class's discussion of Newton, I imagine in order to maintain the scientific status quo in the mind of the populace in future generations, though I am just speculating. Alchemy, or the art of turning lead into gold, and as I stated earlier, the true alchemy of turning inner lead into inner gold, or the spiritual, or the spiritual is that which is eternal. And if we look to the highest of the alchemist's goals, the goal was to create the elixir of life, or the philosopher's stone. To put it clearly as I see it, though science has attempted to remove God from its study of the universe, the mysteries still remain hidden in plain sight in their findings, again, connected to all of religious and spiritual history by a single image that repeats itself, even within the secular sciences. Let's try to work through a bit of this now in order to show you why I think in this manner and what it has to do with explaining the paradox of describability of mystical experience versus the mystic saying it cannot be described. Let's start first with, again, the easiest way that I can think of where one can see that there is something going on in the brain completely independent of what one is consciously thinking of towards producing the image of the world that is seen with the eyes opened. Now, I used to do this with the flame of a candle while meditating, but you can do it with your thumb as well. Please don't do this if you are driving or running or something of that manner. Hold out your thumb and stare at your nail. All your focus, all your attention. 
keep staring at it. Feel the strain of your eyes starting to form as you keep staring. That's your brain trying to keep the image that it's used to seeing together. Keep staring until the double image of the thumb starts to emerge. You have two eyes, remember, not one. Yet we don't see a double world, only one. See how long you can hold the image of this in your mind. Do you struggle to see the two separate thumb images? Do you recoil in fear when you start to see the image split apart into two? Or does it come easy to see the two separate images at the same time? Now these are merely questions for you to ask internally, though they say quite a lot regarding your own comfort level towards the concreteness of reality to which you may or may not cling to, versus being fluid to there being something deeper to the at least visual reality that we bear witness to. So right there, in an instant little optical test, you can see that your brain is putting the image of the world together, all around you and within you, by combining what each individual eye sees into one singular image. You're not conscious of this. Neither am I. It simply happens on its own. How does the brain know that seeing a single image is better than seeing two separate images? Interesting. So if you look at the difference between telescope and microscope, now I don't know anything about the technology within these devices, but I wonder if there's something to why a telescope that looks far away only has one eyepiece to look through, whereas a microscope has two. Maybe something towards seeing farther out versus diving into the interior realms? I'm honestly not sure. I have to jot that question down and look it up later. The real question that comes to mind when you understand this about the image that you see within the brain should be, but might not be limited to this. First, what else is the brain automatically producing and creating in the mind regarding what I see and perceive as the world around me. And then, of course, the deeper thought, what do I actually see and know in the world around me if the brain is automatically producing what I think I know to be the world around me? I can't remember the philosopher that posited this question as well. The name that's coming to mind is a Jewish philosopher, Maimonides, Spinoza as well, I'm seeing flashing around in there. So I assume it's one of the two, but I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. Now, this entire concept that we're discussing, if we travel now to the Eastern traditions and their terminology, is the concept of Maya, or the illusion of reality that exists all around and within us. But to what depths? Since most religions and philosophies speak of an actual reality, an actual eternal reality compared to the almost fictional, yet kind of not fictional reality we see and exist in, since this reality is still very real to us. What is this reality that we see then? How and when does it begin and end? When does Maya or illusion begin and when does it end? What does it mean that the world that I see, hear, smell, taste, touch, is entirely a construct being created by the brain and then interpreted by the mind. Instantaneously, mind you, in what can only be the single greatest system of information sharing known to us, but still created entirely by the brain and interpreted by the mind, the mental, 
the conscious part of our mind, our awareness, as the experience of life, the experience that we call life. So let's now dive deeper into this by following the ancient Greek maxim supposedly spoken of by the Greek philosopher Thales and forever known as that which greeted the pilgrim at the temple of Apollo at the oracle at Delphi, or Neo in the Matrix movie when he visits the oracle in that apartment. The ancient maxim of know thyself. Because in modern terms, knowing oneself seems to be no greater than masturbation, so there is obviously a deeper knowledge to this concept than this modern profane ideal of what knowing oneself consists of. So for this, I will try to do something different than in the previous recordings and will try to lead you through some type of a meditation to help see this truth and reality. Now, I've never done this before. I've been an utter loner in my understanding of these mysteries, never having sought an external teacher beyond what was found in the various writings I've mentioned since even right from the start, I believed if God were real, then God would teach all. Again, please do not do this if you're driving or operating machinery or anything of that nature. You already looked at your thumb, so look at your hand or your arm. Look at the hairs on your arm if you have hair. And somewhat important during this time period, look at the color of your skin and ask yourself, are you the hairs on your arm or the color of your skin? Now, the color of our skin definitely is a big part of our experience of this life, especially in today's day and age, especially in the Western world, especially in America now. Though it wasn't always like this. In ancient Egypt, for instance, the color of the Nubians just denoted those southern peoples at the border as being typically darker than Egyptians themselves. But this didn't reference color of skin the way modern America does and the way Western civilization sees it. If you go to Roman times, they called Africans barbarians and heathens, but they did the same to the Gauls, which is modern-day Germany, or the Germanic tribes. They called them the same since barbarian and heathen had more to do with civilization and laws and order and such, not color of skin. So this is a very American phenomenon, very American. If you go to Latin America, none of this racial divide between darker-skinned black Hispanics versus lighter fair-skinned Hispanics exists. Son negros, pero todavía son hispanos. In no way am I belittling that the color of our skin in today's American world plays a factor in our experience of the world around us. But I ask those that are colored and believers in the afterlife that are affected by this cultural polemic, what color skin will you have in heaven? Will I still be tan brown and Hispanic in heaven? ¿Vamos a hablar español en el cielo? Will there be Chinese-speaking Mandarin in heaven? Australians with their down-under accents in heaven? Cajun English speakers in heaven? An interesting question regarding the self, is it not? So ask yourself, are you the color of your skin only, or are you something deeper? So let's go deeper and explore, since the nexus of this concept and exploration of self is found in the words of St. Paul in Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free person, there is not male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
Now again, if all you're looking at is the topical layer of this, the words themselves, Jew, Greek, slave, free person, male and female, these are states of being, aspects of being, but that there is something deeper, namely being one in Christ Jesus so clearly. This statement is the exact same thing we're questioning now. What is knowledge of the self? Or to know thyself, as the Greek maxim states. Let's continue. We dive now through the skin, the epidermis. What comes next? Muscle? Flesh? Are we our flesh? Bodybuilders might frame their entire identity based around the muscles under their skin, but before they were bodybuilders, they were still themselves, weren't they? And when they're old and muscles are no longer what they had been in the prime of life, they'll still be themselves, won't they? So clearly, we're not the muscles in our body, even though some frame their identity around muscles, just as some frame identity around skin color. How about the skeleton the muscles surround? Well, to any of our brothers and sisters that have lost a limb through whatever means, a beloved uncle of mine that passed away a couple years ago lived in a wheelchair for 30 years. Was he not still himself without the use of his legs? Are amputees less than themselves? I'd say the opposite is true, that a deeper sense of the true self is typically found by such persons having this experience in life. People seem to find deeper meaning to what the real self is beyond the physical form when they've lost an aspect of that physical form. It's typically what I've seen far more often than despair or a loss of the sense of self. So no to the color of skin, muscle, or flesh, the skeleton. How about the systems within? Are we our blood, the air we breathe? They surely keep us alive, lose too much of any one, and the body dies. But can we say that our essential self is our lungs breathing, or the blood flowing in and out of our veins and arteries? Do we associate our concept of ourself with breathing and blood? Blood, of course, has often been associated with life and self, but is it still? Medicine helps to answer this a bit. Those that have lost tremendous amounts of blood, given transfusions from others, they live again, unchanged. Those that have suffocated and lost the air in their lungs have been resuscitated and brought back to life. So neither can we say we are our blood or the air we breathe. Some of the ancients thought the seat of ourselves, or at least aspects of our personalities derived from our organs, the heart, the liver, the brain, the testicles or loins for men, of course. And though there are aspects to spiritual understanding rooted in heart and brain and navel, nerve centers, we can't say we're actually those things, though what we're closer to seems to move through them. So what are we really then? Well, let's look back at the senses. Sight, smell, taste, hearing, touch. Each of these inform our conscious mind to various experiences we are constantly having, but... Though the sense may be hampered, like if you're blind, lose hearing in an ear, etc., does that do anything to the self? In the same way an amputee continues and finds a deeper sense of self, so too if one of our senses is hampered in some way. But we're getting closer. Each of the senses get transmitted instantly, almost magically in its instantaneous nature through our nervous system up the brain stem and into the brain where it is instantaneously processed 
And then our mind applies the meaning to said sensation or experience. The external finding its definition within the internal. And yet if we look at the example of the double image of the thumb that I gave, the brain is automatically interpreting the sensations we feel and experience. And our mind is likewise instantaneously interpreting the various sensations as pain or pleasure or some nasty tasting food or something. Yet another person or you can change that interpretation or have been given a different interpretation and thus have a different experience of the same thing. For instance, some people like eating escargot, but I sure as hell wouldn't taste it. Many people hate seafood, shrimp, and ceviche, but I'd probably die if I couldn't eat shrimp or ceviche. Each person has a different interpretation of the report that the senses gives it, not just individually, but culturally, religiously, etc. Somewhere within this information superhighway within our own nervous system and brain dwells the mind. Is it entirely within the physical mass of brain tissue? Brain damage says so to a degree that the control of certain functions is centered within one section versus another, and if it's damaged, it affects whatever it's being neurologically mapped out as being in charge or control of. So that's definitely column A. But in column B, I'm thinking of a person in a coma, brain completely normal, intact, no tissue damage from whatever trauma it may have suffered that put it into the coma, and yet the person is simply not there. They're there physically, and by all accounts medically, they should be awake, but they're not. Where are they? So there's definitely an aspect of mind that is part of the physical aspect of being human as seen in column A and by science and neurology, but then there must be an aspect that is somehow not part of the physical aspect of being human as seen in column B, which is the realm of religion, spirituality, mysticism. I'm not sure if a scientist or atheist would agree, maybe a neurologist, considering the strides neurology has made in the last 20 to 30 years, maybe. So in mystical terms, everything I just described, the senses, the information that is processed in the brain tissue, the nervous system, all of that is the worldly mind, is the mind that is attached and within the maya or illusion is the mind that one is given the identity that one is given upon birth in this world. This is the mortal mind, the egoic mind and personality, the mind or mental activity that is on autopilot, the mind or mental activity that we have no control over until we seek to have control over it. Yet all of this is still governed by some sort of electrical stuff going on inside of the nervous system, inside of the brain. Electrical impulses, neurotransmitters, and energy coursing through these internal systems. And somewhere within this inner electricity, this inner energy system, is the mind, the conscious mind, the mind of awareness, the mind that is interpreting what the brain essentially shows it to be reality. Now, regardless of the mortal or the physical only versus seeing something deeper, I don't think the neurologist would disagree with that last statement given. Somewhere in this electrical nervous brain impulse system dwells what is called the mind, or our mental activity. And in our examination of know thyself, 
I would be hard-pressed to find somebody that does not agree that it is this, the mind, that is most our self, the memory of our history of life, the conscious knowledge of our today, our hopes and dreams for the future. Though each of these things are entirely different for each individual and each of us, this mental construct of essentially our experience of time dwells entirely within the mind. Now correct me if I'm wrong, but this is entirely scientific, neurological. The understanding that science has gained regarding mental activity, electrically coursing through the nervous system and into the brain and back and forth at speeds unimaginable to produce our experience of life. And religion, or spiritual understanding, doesn't differ from this scientific understanding. This entire electrical nervous system information superhighway that is most closely the seat of the self within each of us since it is most closely where the mind is, that which we can say is most likely our true self, has simply been called the soul in all times prior to modernity. That ball of energy or ball of light that the mystics, capital letters, saw as the true self is no different than what science is claiming to have discovered through modern technology. They just don't call it the soul, of course, but nervous system, neurotransmitting impulses, and techie terms like that in their continued attempt at removing God and everything that comes with the concept of God from the lexicon. Shall we go even deeper? Now I'll admit I'm no scientist. I'm not a scientist or a chemist or a neurologist by any stretch of the imagination. So my trying to talk science stuff over and against an actual scientist is the same as if they were trying to talk mystical stuff with me. They've spent thousands of hours studying their stuff. I've spent thousands of hours studying my stuff. So when I say that to me, it looks like science hasn't proven laws that are that much different than the mysteries of old hasn't already proved, that's obviously coming from my point of view as a mystic that has witnessed the things I've witnessed spiritually. So when I say that science, through one of its laws, laws, not theories, law, has already proven immortality or life after death, that's from my point of view. Obviously not a scientist, and especially not an atheist scientist. If we take the breakdown of self we just went through, what did we wind up with? Some type of electrical nervous system of energy impulses coursing through the body and brain that somehow contains the mind of each individual within it as our truer, closer to the truth, actual self this repository of memory, thoughts, feelings, and experiences that we call ourself. There is a law within thermodynamics, the law of the conservation of energy, that says that energy cannot be created or destroyed, only transferred from one form or another within a closed system. Thus, if our truest self that we've come up with is somehow embedded within the electrical impulse system within our nervous and brain systems, energy coursing through our bodies, then this energy is not destroyed in death, but continues in some way, shape, or form. 
The ancients had many different names for this. Reincarnation, transmigration of souls, metempsychosis, life after death. But it is still the same law of the universe. Now this does open up the idea of pre-existence since this self would have had to have existed in a manner prior to entering into the current form or body and obviously the discussions regarding what came prior as well as what comes after is pretty much entirely speculation and has been the subject of each and every religion since the beginning of recorded time. I'll return to this at some point since I've had some very interesting dreams that speak of some type of pre-existence, along with why, again, I tend to think more in these terms versus reincarnation, since reincarnation implies a lack of control over the transition, where pre-existence, to my mind, how I like to think of it, implies like a little meeting with God about what I would enter into this life for and the goal I would hopefully seek to achieve. But law is law. So thank you, science world. You have literally proven life after death. It just takes knowledge of the self, knowing oneself, what one really is, in order to see this universal law of truth reproven in modernity, but known throughout the millennia without any modern tools or technology, since the same tool that was used then is used now to understand this law, the human brain and mind. Now, returning to the original concept we were trying to discuss, the difference between the worldly mind and the kingdom of heaven mind, that column A mind versus that column B mind, is the key. That there seems to be a portion of the mind that is mortal or attached to the world of form, and then there is an aspect of the mind that isn't attached to the mortal and is beyond the world of form. The goal of meditation, spiritual exercise, mysticism is to pierce through this mortal veil and enter the mentality of that which is beyond the mind of forms. This is called crossing the threshold, entering into pure faith, or how the Lord challenges Ezekiel when he says, who dares to enter the breach to contend with me? Or when Jesus dies and gives up his spirit, Matthew 27, 50, and then it continues in 51, And behold, the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. This is why Christians say that Jesus opened the doorway for us. This is the doorway. If you recall my vision of the ascension to the temple of the Father, the mind symbolized this rising up experience with a barrier of fog that I crossed when rising up into the sky. I say the mind did it because it's not like I imagined or thought it. I did not think that layer of fog. It is simply how the mortal mind, if we remember the entire thing we just spoke about of how the brain produces images in the mind, it is simply how the mortal mind tries to give consciousness the image of what it is experiencing in this mystical experience. Crossing the threshold of known into unknown, of concrete into formless, into faith. This is the leap of faith that Christianity has spoken of for 2,000 years. Thus to say that it is indescribable signifies what is beyond the mental world of form. Again, most likely for a pupil's sake, 
but it is most definitely describable since one returns from this beyond back into the world of forms specifically in order to speak about it. It's just the language of what is seen is silence and then symbolic. This beyond realm speaks in symbols known to us. It can't speak to us in symbols we don't know, and the task afterwards is to decipher those inner symbols to make sense of what is seen. This is actually the mystery of the Tower of Babel, because what language is the universal language in that myth that gets broken up into many languages? If you said anything other than symbolic language, you are wrong. Symbolic language is the eternal language, is the foundation of language, is the universal language. Understanding language itself reveals this instantly. So I will end this with a final meditation, examination for you to question. Another way in which I've thought of how to show the differentiation between worldly thought versus the thought of beyond and within the kingdom of heaven. And hopefully this reveals to a greater depth what we have just spoken of. It's a simple question. I may have already asked it in the first episode, and so we come back to it, but I will make it more personal. Have you ever had your own thought? On the surface, it seems like an absurd question. Of course I've had my own thought. I think about stuff all the time. What are you talking about? But what are you really doing? Did you create the symbolic system of letters, the alphabet, that dwells within your mind? Did you determine the sound of each syllable and what each sound would represent within that alphabet? Did you give the meaning behind the combination of the various words that you utilize symbolically in order to give meaning to the world around you? For instance, did you determine that the word tree points to and means tree as in a tall organic thing with bark on it that grows and extends outwards, etc. Each of those words, even in that sentence, entirely symbolic as well. Do you see now? The very language, languages we use, are entirely symbolic systems invented and perfected over time in order to communicate between one another as well as communicate with and to ourselves. But do the words themselves actually mean anything greater than the importance and meaning we give to them? Thus the question, have you had your own thought? Because if all you've done is utilize the symbolic system of language to think and write and talk and have never gone beyond this system of symbols into pure consciousness and thought, your pure consciousness and thought that dwells within you, or the kingdom of heaven, or Christ, or God, then all you've done is used your willpower to first learn the system of symbols called your language, then gain vocabulary, then sentence structure, etc., and then have maneuvered through the entirety of your mental activity in life, utilizing this system of symbols in order to communicate or give meaning to yourself regarding the experiences you've had but yet you are still using a system of symbols that accomplishes this. But what exists prior to this system of symbols? What exists beyond these symbolic forms of meaningful symbols that create structure and form to our thinking and speaking? 
if this mental world of symbolic language and script and writing is the world in our mind, then that which lies beyond, underneath it all, the foundation of it all, is the kingdom of heaven, that which is formless, that which is eternal, that which is God, from whence all springs forth and emerges. Hopefully now you can see the true goal of meditation, how John of the Cross worded it, my house being now all stilled, or no thought in the Buddhist sense, even though awareness or consciousness still continues. Buddha never said anything about no awareness or no consciousness, just no thought. This is why it's said to be indescribable by the various mystics, for it belongs to and exists beyond the world of the symbolic forms, beyond worldly thought, and dwells in the kingdom of heaven. Symbolism itself is how it speaks and communicates, for it is the foundation of symbolism and symbolic thought and speech. God is the fountain of it. The kingdom of heaven is within you and all around you, but you do not see it. That's a mashing together of the biblical texts alongside the Gospel of Thomas Gnostic text. Even the line of you do not see denotes the mystery of that which I speak. You do not see it, for you do not see it with the outer or the inner eyes. You do not see it with the forms that are created within. Jesus is telling you, you do not see it, for you only see it when you do not see it. Let me say that again. Jesus is telling you, you do not see it, for you only see it when you do not see it. Hopefully what I've spoken of helps you to understand the apparent paradox within that statement by Jesus, but also why it is not paradox, but the fact surrounding the truth of why you cannot see the kingdom of heaven, while at the same time can see the kingdom of heaven, or what we started with, why mystic experience is indescribable, while also being describable. As long as you've understood the difference between seeing and not seeing, and not seeing and seeing, perhaps now you are more equipped to understand the mind of the mystic. I haven't decided yet what the next episode will be about, either regarding the knowledge of the fruit of good and evil, and revisiting and diving into greater depths surrounding that, or going further into this the exploration of the mind and breaking down further in depth how the mystic interprets the conscious, the subconscious, and unconscious that I mentioned earlier, especially after this deep dive into knowing thyself that we just underwent. Until next time. Thank you for listening. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. I have close to a thousand pictures at logosofexperienceandtruth.com under the vision section, that show what is perceived by the human mind during a mystical experience. Every culture across the entirety of time has depicted the experience with the same foundational pattern, including science in modernity. Click the link in the episode description or search for logosofexperienceandtruth.com so you can see for yourself and confirm or refute my claims. Please share this podcast with those that are like-minded and click a like on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you again. <laughs>